This story of Grandfather's Old Ram by Mark Twain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Rodstrom. Every now and then in these days the boys used to tell me I ought to get one Jim Blaine to tell me the stirring story of his grandfather's old ram. But they always added that I must not mention the matter unless Jim was drunk at the time, just comfortably and sociably drunk. They kept this up until my curiosity was on the rack to hear the story. I got to haunting Blaine, but it was of no use. The boys always found fault with his condition. He was often moderately, but never satisfactorily drunk. I never watched the man's condition with such absorbing interest, such anxious solicitude. I never so pined to see a man uncompromisingly drunk before. At last, one evening, I hurried to his cabin, for I learned that this time his situation was such that even the most fastidious could find no fault with it. He was tranquilly, serenely, symmetrically drunk. Not a hiccup to mar his voice, not a cloud upon his brain thick enough to obscure his memory. As I entered, he was sitting upon an empty powder keg, with a clay pipe in one hand and the other raised to command silence. His face was round, red, and very serious. His throat was bare, and his hair tumbled. In general appearance and costume he was a stalwart miner of the period. On the pine-table stood a candle, and its dim light revealed the boys sitting here and there on bunks, candle-boxes, powder-kegs, etc. They said, "'Shh! Don't speak! He's gonna commence!' I found a seat at once and Blaine said, I don't reckon them times will ever come again. There never was a more bullier old ram than what he was. Grandfather fetched him from Illinois, got him of a man by the name of Yates, Bill Yates. Maybe you might have heard of him. His father was a deacon, Baptist, and he was a rustler, too. A man had to get up rather early to get the start of old thankful Yates. It was him that put the Greens up to joining teams with my grandfather when he moved west. Seth Green was probably the pick of the flock. He married a Wilkerson, Sarah Wilkerson. Good critter she was, one of the likeliest heifers that was ever raised in old Stoddard, and everybody said that knowed her. She could heft a barrel of flour as easy as I can flirt a flapjack, and spin, don't mention it. Independent! <laughs> When Sile Hawkins come a-browsing round her, she let him know that for all his tin he couldn't trot in harness alongside of her. You see, Sile Hawkins was—no, it weren't Sile Hawkins after all. It was a galoot by the name of Filkins. I disremember his first name, but he was a stump. Coming to prayer meeting drunk one night, hurrayin' for Nixon, because he thought it was a primary, 
and old Deacon Ferguson up and scooted him through the window, and he lit on old Miss Jefferson's head, poor old filly. She was a good soul, had a glass eye, and used to lend it out to old Miss Wagner that hadn't any to receive company in. It weren't big enough, and when Miss Wagner weren't noticing, it would get twisted around in the socket and look up, maybe, or out to one side and every which way, while the other one was looking as straight ahead as a spyglass. Grown people didn't mind it, but it most always made the children cry. It was so sort of scary. She tried packing it in raw cotton, but it wouldn't work somehow. The cotton would get loose and stick out and look so kind of awful that the children couldn't stand it no way. She was always dropping it out and turning up her old dead light on the company empty and making them uncomfortable because she never could tell when it hopped out being blind on that side, you see. So somebody would have to hunch her and say, Your game eye has fetched loose, Miss Wagner, dear. And then all of them would have to sit and wait till she jammed it in again, wrong side before as a general thing, and green as a bird's egg, being a bashful critter and easy shot back before company. But being wrong side before warn't much difference anyway, because her own eye was sky blue and the glass one was yeller on the front side, so whichever way she turned it, it didn't match no how. Old Miss Wagner was considerable on the borrow, she was. When she had a quilting or darkest society at her house, she generally borrowed Miss Higgins' wooden leg to stump around on. It was considerably shorter than her other pin, but much she minded that. She said she couldn't abide crutches when she had company, because they were so slow. Said when she had company and things had to be done, she wanted to get up and hump herself. She was as bald as a jug, and so she used to borrow Miss Jacobs' wig. Miss Jacobs was the coffin peddler's wife. A ratty old buzzard he was. They used to go roosting around where people was sick, waiting for him. And there that old Rip would sit all day in the shade on a coffin that he judged would fit the candidate. And if it was a slow customer and kind of uncertain, He'd fetch his rations and a blanket along and sleep in the coffin night. He was anchored out that way in frosty weather for about three weeks once, before old Robin's place, waiting for him. And after that, for as much as two years, Jacobs was not on speaking terms of the old man, on account of his disappointing him. He got one of his feet froze and lost money too, because old Robin's took a favorable turn and got well. The next time Robbins got sick, Jacobs tried to make it up with him, and varnished up the same old coffin and fetched it along. But old Robbins was too many for him. He had him in, and appeared to be powerful weak. He bought the coffin for ten dollars, and Jacobs was to pay it back, and twenty-five more besides, if Robbins didn't like the coffin after he'd tried it. And then Robbins died. And at the funeral he bursted off the lid and rise up in his shroud and told the parson to let up on the performance because he could not stand such a coffin as that. You see, he had been in a trance once before when he was young and he took the chances on another, calculating that if he made the trip it was money in his pocket and if he missed fire he couldn't lose a cent. And by George he sued Jacobs for the rhino and got judgment. 
and he set up the coffin in his back parlor and said he allowed to take his time now. It was always an aggravation to Jacobs, the way that miserable old thing acted. He moved back to Indiana pretty soon, went to Wellsville. Wellsville was the place the Hogadorns were from. Mighty fine family, old Maryland stock. Old Squire Hogadorn could carry around more mixed liquor and cuss better than most any man I ever see. His second wife was the Witter Billings, she that was Becky Martin. Her dam was Deacon Dunlap's first wife. Her oldest child, Maria, married a missionary and died in Greece, et up by the savages. They ate him, too, poor fella, biled him. It warn't the custom, so they say, but they explained to friends of his'n that went down there to bring away his things that they'd tried missionaries every other way and never could get any good out of him, and so it annoyed all his relations to find out that that man's life was fooled away just out of a darned experiment, so to speak. But mind you, there ain't anything ever really lost. Everything that people can't understand and don't see the reason of does good if you only hold on and give it a fair shake. Providence don't fire no blank cartridges, boys. That their missionary's substance, unbeknownst to himself, actually converted every last one of them heathens that took a chance at the barbecue. Nothing ever fetched them but that. Don't tell me it was an accident that he was biled. There ain't no such thing as an accident. When my Uncle Lem was leaning up against the scaffolding once, sick or drunk or something, an Irishman with a hod full of bricks fell on him out of the third story and broke the old man's back in two places. People said it was an accident. Much accident there was about that. He didn't know what he was there for, but he was there for a good object. If he hadn't been there, the Irishman would have been killed. Nobody can ever make me believe anything different from that. Uncle Lem's dog was there. Why didn't the Irishman fall on the dog? Because the dog would have seen him a-coming and stood from under. That's the reason the dog warn't appointed. A dog can't be depended on to carry out a special providence. Mark my words, it was a put-up thing. Accidents don't happen, boys. Uncle Lem's dog, <laughs> I wish you could have seen that dog. He was a regular shepherd, or rather he was part bull and part shepherd. Splendid animal. Belonged to Parson Hagar before Uncle Lem got him. Parson Hagar belonged to the Western Reserve Hagars. Prime family. His mother was a Watson. One of his sisters married a Wheeler. They settled in Morgan County, and he got nipped by the machinery in a carpet factory and went through in less than a quarter of a minute. His widder bought the piece of carpet that had his remains wove in, and people come a hundred mile to tend the funeral. There was fourteen yards in the piece. She wouldn't let them roll em up, but planted em just so, full length. The church was middling small where they preached the funeral, and they had to let one end of the coffin stick out of the window. They didn't bury him. They planted one end and let him stand up, same as a monument. And they nailed a sign on it and put, uh, 
put on uh, put on it uh, sacred uh, to the memory of fourteen yards of three ply carpet containing wool that was mortal of William Jim Blaine had been growing gradually drowsy and drowsier. His head nodded once, twice, three times, dropped peacefully upon his breast, and he fell tranquilly asleep. The tears were running down the boy's cheeks. They were suffocating with suppressed laughter, and had been from the start though I had never noticed it. I perceived that I was sold. I learned then that Jim Blaine's peculiarity was that whenever he reached a certain stage of intoxication, no human power could keep him from setting out, with impressive unction, to tell about a wonderful adventure which he had once had with his grandfather's old ram and the mention of the ram in the first sentence was as far as any man had ever heard him get concerning it. He always maundered off interminably from one thing to another, till his whiskey got the best of him and he fell asleep. What the thing was that happened to him and his grandfather's old ram is a dark mystery to this day, for nobody has ever yet found out. End of The Story of Grandfather's Old Ram by Mark Twain Recording by Rick Rodstrom